Welcome to the MFA Made for Agriculture podcast. Here are your hosts, Adam Jones and Cameron Horine. All right, folks. Well, welcome to another episode of the Made for Agriculture podcast. My name is Adam Jones. And I'm Cameron Horine. And I'm decreasing my stress level today, uh, Cameron. And we're going to go back from talking about current events and prices of inputs and shortages and we can't get this and we can't get that. Um, and so I'm actually pretty excited about these next two episodes because we're going to kind of get back to, to good technical information and uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about integrating livestock on the operation and, and kind of how we do that efficiently and, and get down in the weeds a little bit. It, you know, I, I like talking about current events, but at the same time, uh, I, I definitely want to get back to, to some of the, the good old technical stuff and, and how we make it actually work on the farm because that's definitely what I enjoy. So. Anyway, I think you're really going to get something out of today, and um, our guest today is is Stephen Dalmey. He's a, a livestock specialist for MFA in District 10, which is actually uh, down towards southeast Missouri. So, Stephen, you want to introduce yourself and kind of give us a little background on you? Um, sure. Um, as you said, I'm a livestock specialist down in D10. Um, been with the company, I guess, I don't know, 15 plus years. I can't remember exactly. My wife's a veterinarian, degree in animal science from Mizzou. Um, coached the meats team up there for a while. Um, been in the in the the purebred or the seed stock business with Sam and Sam Angus cattle for 35, 40 years, and was fortunate enough enough to uh, raise a champion pin of bulls and that won Denver in, back in 2002. So that's kind of my background. Yeah, it's awesome. awesome. It's always it's always good when you get enough uh, tenure with a company that you can't remember how long you've been there. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I actually did not realize your wife was a veterinarian, so you get to go home and talk about cattle all night, too. So. Uh, no, actually, she doesn't like to talk about cows. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably not the worst thing. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> oh, man. Awesome. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. So what we kind of want to try to get through and cover today is is um, – as we're kind of setting up for winter here, so we're in we're into October and, and, and November. And so as we kind of set up to, to try to maximize the grazing season and, and then as we start to supplement with hay, I want to kind of try to cover some of the, the background of of what we're doing and why we're doing it. And if we if we're in if we're integrating a supplement in there, um, what that is and, and how that looks and, and why we're choosing that specific one, because I think there's at least in my world, which is, is not cattle heavy, I guess, but, um, which is my fault, but, <laughs> but, but, uh, but, you know, we, we always think it's like, well, let's keep them on grass as long as possible. But I know there's, you know, I, I know there's nuances there, uh, in, in what we can integrate. So, um, I think the first thing I want you to cover Stephen for us would be just kind of in, in planning for, for, for hay and supplement, how do you usually look at, uh, I know you're setting that up kind of way longer into the season, kind of planning out your fall grazing. So can can you kind of walk us through your your thought process anyway on on kind of how you look at that? Yeah. So, you know, going back all the way to college, I had a, an economics professor that said every day a cow's grazing, she's making you money. And every day she, you're feeding her hay, she's probably losing you money. So you better figure out a way to keep cows grazing as much of the year as possible. Um, if you go back to the feeds and feeding and nutrition books, They'll tell you about 70% of the cost in a beef cow operation is is basically feeding nutrition for that cow. So um, for me, 
I try to encourage guys to look at ways that they can keep cows grazing as long as possible, which means, you know, this time of year, hopefully they've been stockpiling some fescue. Um, that's a, that's a really good, you know, way to get cows through the winter without having to feed a lot of hay. Um, as we talked earlier, probably yesterday, and, and you know, I, I do some row crop stuff and I use a lot of cover crops to get my cows through the winter. We'll use some rye, wheat, triticale, crimson clover, vets, that kind of stuff to, to get my cows, you know, keep my cows grazing as much of the year as possible. Right. And I think that's that's an important thing to note. And I definitely want to get in and cover some of that in a little bit here as far as, you know, going outside those typical pasture boundaries um, to, to grab some of that fall and, and winter grazing. And I, I've been around you livestock guys just enough to know that you do talk about hay testing a lot. <laughs> and yep. so um, when when you're starting to look at that or or when you want to look at a hay test, um, number one, how do you pull that? And then kind of what are we what are we looking for in there? What numbers are we looking for? Yeah, so so of course we encourage hay testing, forage testing, whether it's silage or or dry hay. Um, we really should have you know hopefully had that done and already had some samples back. So we could already be putting some plans in place um, to maximize the use of that. What we'll typically do on dry hay um, or baleage, we, you know, in my area, we've got a lot of guys baling high moisture hay, um, which allows them to get it cut a little more on time. When, and, and timing is critical. Um, and everybody asks me, you know, what species is the best, stuff like that. But, but honestly, timing, getting that forage while it's still vegetating before it goes reproductive is the key to maximizing the amount of digestible nutrients in there and maximizing the amount of protein. Um, so just to emphasize that, but we carry uh, our hay probes um, and, you know, we'll separate that hay out by lots, maybe when it was baled, um, separated by species or forage type, and we'll take several stabs um, out of a bale and try to get a representative sample from each lot of hay. Uh, we'll test that usually for nitrates, too, to make sure there's no issues there with, you know, something that might actually cause us a problem from a toxicity standpoint. But the main thing we're interested in, keep it kind of simple from a beef cow standpoint, is TDN and, uh, and crude protein. Those are the two numbers that, you know, I try to look at that kind of keeps it simple for taking care of our beef cows. Okay, so can you explain, go into a little bit and, and explain those numbers a little bit for folks? So. Um, you know, I, just to make sure uh, I'm not going to lie to people that are that are listening in, I've, I pulled up a, a hay test that <laughs> that's been done recently just to make sure I reference everything right. And so when we're talking about stuff, it actually matches up kind of with what somebody might see when it comes back from the lab. So when you talk about TDN, can you kind of explain what that number is and, and what it means to you? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the, the technical definition is it's the sum of digestible protein, fiber, and nitrogen-free extract and fat. Um, basically, it kind of gives us a snapshot, the way I would describe it, of, of uh, how much digestible energy, um, how many digestible nutrients are in that forage sample that a cow can make use of. That's kind of a simple um, explanation of what TDN is. And a beef cow generally, um, you know, roughly is going to need about a pound of TDN for 100 pounds of body weight um, going through the winter. So that's just kind of a round number. It's actually not exactly that, but. That's the number that I use just kind of off the top of my head to, to get us in the ballpark where we need to be to make sure we're covering our bases on on uh, on energy. Um, and then protein, you know, obviously that's uh, they're actually analyzing the amount of nitrogen in the sample and we're calculating the amount of protein in that in that sample. But again, a beef cow needs roughly about a pound and a half of protein a day um, going through the winter. So 
roughly pounded TDN per hundred pounds of body weight, and pound and a half of protein is going to going to do a pretty good job getting dry cows. You know, so so cows that have weaned calves uh, going through the winter, uh, it'll get them in through the winter in pretty good shape without losing body condition. So. Stephen, is that different for fall and spring calvers? Because like you said, dry cows with weaned calves, what's the difference between if you got somebody that's a spring cat or yeah, so, yeah, spring yeah, calver that's to, carrying? So there is definitely a difference. And we've got a lot of fall calving cows in our trade territory for sure. In fact, my cows are all fall calvers. Um, but for, uh, for a wet cow, lactating cow going through the winter, um, those needs increase about 20%. Um, so you can just bump that those numbers up, TDN. Um, you know, 1.2 pounds per 100 pounds of body weight, and uh, you're going to be looking at 1.7 or something like that, 1.6, 1.7 pounds of protein to get her through the winter without losing considerable body condition. Stephen, talk me through good hay versus junk hay, and <laughs> and I, uh, that's because, pretty broad. Yeah, it is very broad. Um, and and so like, I guess the difference is is obviously in the bulk. But um, but kind of walk me through kind of your thought process when you're looking at feeding some really good hay and maybe how you might feed that strategically versus feeding, you know, if you've got a whole bunch of, uh, you know, really horrible testing, you know, stuff that just didn't get put up right. Yeah. So so junk hay, um, start there. Um, so <laughs> there, we see a fair amount of that, actually, mm-hmm. unfortunately. But again, it, it comes back to timing. It, you know, you just can't, we really can't emphasize that enough. Har- the timing when we harvest that forage is just critical. But TDN, um, generally, if that number is less than 52, I consider that kind of low quality forage. And and that, that TDN number gives us an, also an estimate of what that cow might be able to eat in terms of percent of her body weight. So higher TDN or um, higher digestibility forages, a cow can process that and process more of it, can actually eat more pounds per day. A low quality forage again say less than 52 tdn you know her in- intake is going to actually be limited by the amount of digestion that can occur how fast the bugs can process it at a rumen and how fast she can move it on through so a low quality forage say less than tdn kind of the max amount a dry cow can consume is about one and a half percent of her body weight so if you get to a better quality forage like something that's maybe in the mid 50s 55 or 56 tdn um, you know, those cows can, can consume more of that, maybe more like 2% of their body weight, maybe even a little higher if it's, if it's way up in the 50s or approaching, you know, that 60 number that we would consider kind of uh, dairy cow quality kind of stuff. Oh, that's, that's interesting. I guess I didn't, a little counterintuitive to, I guess I didn't really think about the limiting factor there. You would think with a low quality hay, they would just have to eat a whole bunch of it or would try, I mean, I'm sure they try to eat a whole bunch of it to try to get what they need. Right, and and that's kind of why I tell people. I mean, it's a double-edged sword. Not only is that that hay have less energy per pound and less protein per pound, the cows can actually eat less of it just because they just can't they can't process it any faster than that. So that's that's kind of the again the importance of getting that stuff harvested on time. And and again, that time is before that forage gets reproductive. So if it's fescue hay, you know, whenever they start seeing boots. Before it heads out, they need to try to get that stuff on the ground, um, whether it's wheat or rye. You know, we've got a lot of guys using some small grain kind of stuff to, to maybe yep. bale, make baleage out of in the spring. You know, I tell guys, if you start seeing heads, you're already too late. 
Um, they need to be thinking about getting that stuff harvested before it heads out or before the alfalfa starts blooming, before the red clover starts blooming, whatever it is they're using. Um, the reproductive stage is kind of the stage when everything starts going downhill. Um, so then you mentioned, you know, how do we, if they've got some good hay and bad hay, I think, you know, that was part of the question before, you know, what would I do? So, and, and that's pretty typical. Sometimes we'll get some guys, we'll, t- we'll sample several lots of hay and we'll have some stuff that's pretty good along with some stuff that maybe got bailed late. And um, so, you know, one strategy you can use is if you've got some really good stuff, it's got more soluble carbohydrates, a higher TDN number, a higher protein number, you know, we might be able to mix that hay a little bit and, and try to, you know, help. Because really what the, what's going on in a cow is, is the, the bugs in the, in the rumen are actually digesting that forage, and then the cows, the rest of her digestive system is actually harvesting that energy and, uh, the fatty acids and stuff that those bugs produce, um, and she's actually digesting them. So we might be able to turn those bugs on a little bit by utilizing some high-quality forage along with some of that lower-quality forage. And by doing that, we're getting some more soluble carbohydrates in there, some higher protein um, to actually help that bug population reproduce and, and harvest uh, as much as they can out of that low-quality forage. And so in, in kind of preparing some, if, you know, if, somebody needs to supplement you know either something that's high carbs or or grain or something as long are you, are you kind of looking for the same the same thing just kind of balancing what what maybe they're not getting out of either something they're grazing or or that hay test that you're looking at sure i mean so that's exactly what we would do is we take that forage test and and let's just say that we're, we're dealing with some low quality hay and that's all a, a producer has is some stuff that maybe is less than that 52 number um you know we and depending on the class of livestock, whether they're, they're wet cows, dry cows, stockers, whatever, um, we're going to, you know, I'll look up what the TDN number is, if it's if stockers or whatever, how much protein we need to begin getting into them, and we'll figure out where they're short. Um, a lot of times it is energy, and we'll try to supplement something. To, actually, what we'll really want to do is supplement something to turn those bugs on, um, to give them a little more energy to digest that low-quality forage, break down the cellulose, and, uh, and capture more out of it. But uh, something, either in the, if they're hand-feeding those cows or whether it's a tub or a lick or something, just enough to get those cows uh, a little more energy, a little more protein, so we're, we're meeting those energy and protein needs for that cow going through the winter. Okay. And so I assume you've tested a lot of these things, and so – how does something like stockpiled fescue test compared to uh, a bale of hay? That's an awesome question. I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> actually, it, it, most people think that how could that stockpiled fescue um, that's maybe doesn't have much green left in it, uh, it's January, um, how could that stuff possibly have any nutrition value in it? Well, the fact of the matter is um, that the quality of that fescue standing fescue out there that's been stockpiled is probably better than most people's hay that they put up. The TDN on that stockpiled fescue all the way probably into January and February will be up in the mid-50s for TDN and probably going to still hang in there somewhere around 12% protein. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know if I've tested any fescue hay this year that's been put up that was 12% protein and in the mid-50s for TDN. So, I can, I mean, I can tell you, and that, that's not my numbers. That's that's some research data I think out of North Carolina. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it's a uh, stockpile fescue is actually for the most part better than most people's hay that they put up. Is 
Is that all because the way in through January and February? Yeah, and I, I know there's a lot of factors, but is is storage of hay a big contribution to that, Stephen? I mean, I know putting it up at the right time is also probably also affects it, but it's you know not everybody wraps their hay, not everybody has a cover for the hay. What is how does storage play into role, or does it affect it at all? Well, I mean, I think the biggest thing that storage does is it you know it contributes to waste. Um, yeah. You know that outside. You know, however many inches, depending on whether they've got a net wrap baler or whether they're using twine or, or you know, how tight they get those bales. Um, you know, that outside three, four, five inches as it goes through the winter becomes, you know, bedding for the most part because the cows right. really probably aren't going to eat it. And so, um, you know, you're just you're losing a lot of potential forage um, by storing that hay improperly. I mean, that's probably the biggest loss. I mean, certainly if it gets rotten and you're forcing cows to eat rotten hay, that's a, that's not a good situation. Yeah. But uh, so one other thing that, uh, that happens to fescue um, stockpile fescues that goes through the winter is the ergovalene content, the, the compound that actually causes uh, fescue toxicosis uh, cows to have vasal constriction. So their, their tails possibly fall off to get fescue filled, all those kinds of problems. Um, as we get into January and February, that, that ergovalene content actually starts dropping through December and actually gets a much, much lower as we get later into the winter. Um, again, that's something that uh, that's, that's positive for, for utilizing stockpiled fescue getting cows through the winter because we're actually getting less of that concentration that actually causes a problem. Right. So can it actually get less toxic? I mean, I assume that it probably has less, way less toxicity in it than, than actual fescue hay does than if it's losing it out there. Yeah, that's a very, that's a very, very high possibility correct yeah that is wild because i mean that's you're you're exactly right i mean that's pretty high quality hay if you're talking mid 50s and 12 percent. i mean the main the main thing is just with spring with weather unless your number one focus on the farm is hay production there are very few guys that are timely enough to get that kind of quality fescue hay um and, and just even if even that if even if that is your number one priority we don't a lot of times get the weather in may to make that kind of fescue hay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so that, and that's true. I think most of the time it's the weather. You just can't string enough days together to get that stuff cut when it needs to be cut and baled, um, which is why in my area, a lot of guys have went to, to making silage bales and, and oh, I was just, high yep. moisture hay because yep. you, know, you can, you know, you could basically cut that one day and bale it the next and it just gives 100%. a little more opportunity to get it harvested on time. Yep. Yeah, right. 100%. That's that's definitely why you see everybody carting the the, you know, wet wrap capable balers around uh these yep. days. So Yeah, but I, I I guess one thing I wanted to ask, you know, on the testing hay aspect, um, you know, on I haven't talked to a lot of cattle producers uh, about this and about what their quality hay was or if they have enough baleage bales for the year, but you know, some years we get into these situations where we have to buy a lot of hay is is it better to get somebody that has already tested a hay when you buy or is do you do you ask people can they test it before they buy it you know kind of you know what i'm asking steven i mean sure i mean if you're buying lots of hay um and you know i'll my dairy producers are probably more um in tune to actually requiring a forage test before they buy something because nutrient density is, is just so important to those guys but yeah. If you're a beef producer, or even if you have horses or something like that, and you're purchasing hay, if you can get buy from somebody that has a forage test on that stuff, it gives you a better idea of what you're purchasing. 
um, in the real world, um, you're going to be very, it's going to be very unlikely you can pull that off. Um, so what I tell people and my wife, wife actually works with a lot of equine. And so, you know, I tell her to tell her horse people, if it's something you can, you could stuff in your pillowcase and sleep on at night, it'd be fairly comfortable. It's pretty high quality. If you'd poke your eyes out, you need to leave it alone. And beef cow guy, same deal. If it's, if that hay's soft and, and does, you know, it doesn't have a lot of cellulose in the stems, it's probably pretty good stuff. Um, if it's really stemmy, the test is not going to be as good as you would like it to be. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess that's a kind of a good visual. I was thinking, I was trying to think of, you know, if you don't have a test, how do you can you visually do it? Because you know, sometimes we get in these years where somebody's selling, you know, I'm just going to throw prices out there because I don't know what all the prices are, but somebody's selling, you know, large round bales for thirty dollars, and sometimes somebody down the road has it for forty or forty five. Um, and then you're just like, well, do they really have better quality hay or are they just trying to, you know, stick it to the producer? Um, yeah. And I mean, then there's, I mean, balers and how, how tight they, how much hay they actually put in a bale. Exactly. I mean, the best way to purchase hay is on a forage test by the right. ton. And then everybody knows what, you know, what they're buying. You know how much you're paying for your TDN, you know how much you're paying for your protein. Um, but again, in the real world, a lot of bales are, I mean, the hay sold by the bale, nobody knows. You know what the analysis on it is yeah but if that's the real that's the real world that we live in you know oh right. for sure yeah just and there's like you like you mentioned with the baylor thing there's such a quantity difference you know it'd be like it'd be like ever you know advertising hey i've got a truckload of grain for sale but you don't know if it's a pickup truck a tandem axle truck or a hopper bottom uh until you get there and pick it up right or how much moisture that hay's got in it yeah um, yeah i mean even if it's bale dry and it's say 15% moisture or 16% moisture versus some hay that's maybe 10 or 11. I mean, you know, that's a, that's a fairly decent difference in terms of amount of water you're buying. And I know some guys that are buying baleage. Um, in a lot of cases that stuff's half water. So you just got to take all those factors into consideration. So going back to, um, you know, you mentioned with, uh, mid to low quality hay, you're, you're typically supplementing some sort of high carb, you know, kind of, supplement to that to that feed ration essentially when you're out there on say stockpiled fescue and you mentioned the feed the the forage typical forage test there um do you need to do that or what are you looking at from a you know kind of additionality or or supplement stage there or or do we need anything if we're out there on good high quality stockpiled fescue well um so i mean number one uh, minerals you know all forages are going to be deficient in micro minerals and micro minerals so that's a okay. that's a given those cows need to have access to some kind of a mineral source whether it's loose mineral whether it's mineral in a tub or something like that okay um, because because again all forages are going to be deficient um past that um depending on stage of production if it's if it's dry cows uh, spring calving cows the calves weaned off of them great and stockpile fescue going through the winter um unless the environment is pretty um uh severe those cows can you know they can probably get through the winter in fairly good shape without a lot of supplementation outside of minerals if the, if the stockpile fescue is pretty good um because again mid-50s will will maintain a cow's body weight or mid-50s on tdn will maintain a cow's body weight um fairly well and it's going to be adequate if it's 12 percent protein uh, it's going to be supplying her more than a pound and a half a tdn i guess something else to look at on stockpile fescue is, is intakes um you know, we can manage that stockpiled fescue differently, strip off so much a day. Uh, 
know, if you're if you're not utilizing some kind of uh, grazing technique that would maximize dry matter intake, uh, you might actually get to a situation where the intakes actually go down because of uh, availability, whether it's uh, snow, ice, something like that that causes the cows not to be able to eat as much, or maybe just the, the pasture's been picked over, and you know there's enough of it that's been stomped on, and the cows just aren't eating as much as they should. So if dry matter intakes go down, then you know obviously you're back into a situation where we may we might need to supplement those cows. Um, I guess something that I kind of mentioned was environment. Um, you know, mud something we had we've had actually the last couple of years, but some data out of K State, you know, basically says if those cows are in three to four or five inches of mud, um, their feed intake actually drops and their uh, energy requirements go up 30 percent. That's not a lot of mud. Um, if you no, get that's not. Deep mud, if you get into some deep mud, intakes can drop by 30% and the requirements, uh, you know, go up by 30%. So whether the cattle are wet or not, uh, a winter hair coat, the lower critical temperature for a cow going through the winter is about 32. If she gets wet, that lower critical temp goes to 60. So the amount of cold stress goes up, you know, it doubles essentially when a cow has wet hide. So you know, those are some things that guys have to consider as they're deciding what to supplement through the winter time too. Many times, if things are all right, you know, the weather isn't ideal. Those guys can get through without much supplementation. But keep in mind that if, if they get a little bit of mud, we get some wet hides, energy requirements on those cows, and, and you know, can basically darn near go up 50% if they've got any kind of mud or wet hide kind of conditions going on. Yeah, that's something to think about, and and something to think about, you know where you have access to you and, and maybe access to shelter or whatever in those cases, if you're trying to graze. Um, and I think that's what makes some guys kind of nervous about uh, stockpiled fescue. You know, it's like, well, I'm, you're telling me I'm supposed to be out there in the back pasture on the back corner of the farm in December, you know, strip grazing that um, fescue. It's like, well, what happens if we get a snowstorm or, or whatever? But I, I think that is something to think about when you maybe choose, choose where you want to put your stockpile and things like that. So. Yeah, sure. And so, you know, and that's, uh, we've got some guys that whenever they strip graze, they'll actually set some bales out, you know, get into January or February. They'll actually, if they know they're going to strip off 100 feet or whatever the number is, they may set some bales in, in. And so every time they move the wire back, those cows actually have access to some hay or they've got an area close by. So that if something bad happens, they can't get a tractor there. They can't get a truck there or whatever. They can just pull, you know, pull up a wire and the cows have access to hay and stockpile fescue. So there's yep. some, there some strategies you can use um, to make sure you don't get, get hung in a spot where you're, you know, you have a catastrophe. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I was just going to say that when you were talking about the, the hay bale thing that, and that's a, a really good idea. It's like, you know, either take a nice fall dry day or a nice frozen ground day and, and go preset a bunch of hay bales where you're not slopping through mud. And cause we, you know, you may need them on a day where you can't get the tractor back there. Yep. Yep. And that's another thing with guys feeding round bales and rings and stuff like that. I mean, you think about how deep the mud gets going into, into and out of those bale rings. It can easily be a couple of feet deep. Oh yeah. So, I mean, that, that decreases the cow's intake by 30% and also increases her, her, uh, requirements. So, you know, a lot of guys went to unrolling hay in the wintertime yeah. um, as a way of getting around some of the mud. Yeah. You may still have a little mud. You may stomp up your pastures a little bit, but generally fescue is pretty, uh, pretty durable it'll, it'll bounce back from some of that as long as you don't over abuse it and you continue moving where you feed around but 
Um, that's another advantage to say on rolling hay versus actually yeah. having cows stomping through the mud to get to and to and from a bale feeder. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I like those other forages a lot. Um, but, uh, but that is the beautiful thing about fescue is that you can't kill it. And if you, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if it's, if it's something you've beat to death as as long as you give it enough rest time, it'll, it'll still be there. It'll bounce back. Yep. Yep. Steven, I, one thing we've talked about, we talked about testing the stockpiled fescue um, aspect, and we talked about how, you know, how we test the hay, you use a hay probe. How, what's the best way to pull a test on stockpiled fescue to get those TDN numbers? Um, you know, probably the best thing to do would be to pick some spots out. I've actually never done that, I'll be honest. Um, the numbers I've used have just been book values, but... Um, go out through that pasture and, and take some random samples uh, throughout that pasture. Uh, basically, you know, I would do it the same way a cow would graze. I'm trying right. to pick up what that what that cow would actually be eating as opposed to uh, maybe cutting some off at the ground or whatever. But I, I would just I would walk out through there and, and grab some samples that way. That's what I would do. Yeah, I would think you would want to try to cut it, you know, anywhere from that three to four inch range. Because that's, I mean, if you're, if you're utilizing grazing strategies, I mean, think about where we're rotating pastures. We're not trying to pull it all the way down, right? We're trying to get, you know, that two to four inch range before we pull them off. So that, that would be my thought process as well. Yeah. Let's um let's kind of pivot now into talking about maybe kind of alternative ways that we could um we could go get some uh, forage kind of during the fall or winter. Um you you want to kind of touch on a little bit just um I do want to touch on you know cover crops or something that's kind of a fall planted annual type situation. But but first off I think you know a, you go to Nebraska and a lot of other states utilize just straight corn stover. Um, for for a decent fall forage can you kind of go into the kind of nuances or or grazing on that during the fall yeah so uh, i'm actually surprised a lot more people don't don't do that in our area but a lot of our fences have gotten pulled up around some of that row crop ground but yeah that's um, right corn stover corn stover um usually being that five to six percent protein range uh with a tdn somewhere around 50 uh just you know kind of book values that's what it's going to run Sure. Um, so cows, cows are going to be short of protein um, on something that's five to six percent because you know she's her maximum intake is probably going to be a percent and a half of body weight because it's less than fifty percent TDN. Um, we're assuming that they're doing a good job harvesting and not leaving much corn in the field for the cows to pick up. Um, so they're going to need to supplement some kind of protein, um, you know, along with that. A lot of those guys I think up in Nebraska are using some kind of a tub. Um, Many times going out on that on corn stalks, um, you could accomplish the same thing with just some 20% cubes. You know, probably uh, you know a couple of pounds of 20% breeder cubes or or all natural cattle cubes. Anything like that is gonna is gonna get them to a spot where they're gonna have adequate protein to digest that fiber. Okay. Or again, like I said, a lick tub or a lick tank, something like that. So you're still talking about something that's fairly low volume. You're not carting large amounts of feed out there to them while they're while they're utilizing that right because you know again if she's getting a pound of protein out of the forage we've just got to figure out a way to get another three or four tenths of a pound of protein into her we're talking if we're talking spring cabin cows um you know wet cows would be a different story uh going through the winter on on corn stover but for the most part i think you know up that far of the country those guys are going to be spring cabin 
and they're going to be talking about taking dry cows through trying to graze corn stalks. So we don't have to get a lot into them. We just need to get a little into them to encourage those bugs to turn over a little more rapidly and digest a little more cellulose and, and just get us just a little more intake. And uh, and all of a sudden, then we go from being in a negative energy balance to you know positive or at least in a thermal neutral environment. We're meeting her needs where she's not losing weight. So right. Right. And so how long can you typically stay out on something like that? Is that dependent as well on the ability to kind of strip it? Or is there just a kind of a time frame where where the quality goes to junk and, and we've got to move on? Um, on, on corn stover, I don't I mean, this is my opinion. I don't know. I've never uh, I don't have a lot of experience with corn stover. I'll have to be honest. But I would think the forage quality is probably not going to necessarily decline a lot. My biggest concern would be, you know, dry matter intakes. How much can we get into them as they've been on that pasture or on those stalks for a certain period of time? They're going to pick up the leaves and the more desirable parts first. Um, as they get that accomplished and they're left with nothing but stalks, um, dry matter intakes are going to diminish digestibility. That stuff's going to be a lot less than the leaves and the husks that are left out there. Um, sure. To me, that would be a concern. Availability of what's there and is uh would be the primary concern for me and making sure we got enough intake on those cows right but i would think some kind of strip grazing plan or moving those cows you know from field to field would be a much better strategy than just kicking cows out and leaving them there all winter long oh sure sure yeah for sure but i I definitely agree i think it's a fairly underutilized resource although although like you mentioned you know we've, we've had a lot of fences taken down um in row crop country um but it's it's definitely a good strategy i think because sure. the, f- the field openings were too small to get their big headers in these days yeah. so they had to make they had to open it up <laughs> well the biggest thing on that is those tree lines um yeah tend to accompany tend to accompany fence rows and as you guys know yep. on both sides of that tree line the first pass or two around Yep. The yield is not nearly as good as it is about the third pass, and on a 15 or a 20-acre field, by the time you get the outside two rounds cut, there's not a lot left in the middle. Yep, that's exactly right. Yep, yep. that's exactly right. And but on something that has a fence on it, you know, if you just think about if you had an outside pass or two in in fescue that you basically stockpiled until you turned in that row crop field during the winter time, that's always something else I think about that um, you know. You know, on some of that field edge stuff, it's like just if you're going to graze it, it, it opens up the door for you on uh, on profitability on that, you know, on that that acre. And my goodness, if you had a 20 foot stretch of stockpiled fescue around the perimeter of your field, you know, versus five bushel soybeans, if you're going to graze it during the winter, the you know, the your, your dollar amount income off of that acre changes significantly there. Sure. Well, and the other thing that would happen is cattle tend to be kind of rough on on the brush you know, on the little sprouts and things like yeah. that too. So yep. if you're actually had the fences in your graze in those areas, you know, I think you, what you'd find is the, that the brush wouldn't creep in quite as fast. And yep. uh, if you wouldn't have the yield loss in your, your cash crop that you would, you know, if you're not grazing. Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. Um, and so the, something that kind of goes along with that too, would be, would be grazing out on, on cover crops. what, I know a lot of guys, or at least the number one question I get <clears throat> with some of this is guys want, you know, I think we all know that that planting wheat or, or cereal rye or something like that can give us almost guaranteed uh, early spring grazing, um, which is, 
which is an excellent thing, right? Because if we can turn out on fescue in late May versus early April, that changes the game for our entire season of grazing. So that, that's certainly valuable. But I think with cover crops, the number one thing or number one question I get um, is guys who want fall grazing. So can you kind of walk us through your, your thought process there for um, for what you're typically either what you're doing or kind of what you've seen work? Uh, sure. I mean, um, on corn, you know, or if they can get that stuff shelled in August and get something planted, um, the possibilities of being able to graze rye, maybe throw some turnips in there or, or whatever, uh, the possibil- possibilities to graze that in the fall are actually pretty good. Um, if you're talking about following soybeans and you can't get it planted until, you know, 15th of October or maybe even the 1st of November, um, you know, then you're just not going to have gr- enough green material there to, to do any grazing in the fall. Now, certainly by the time February, March rolls around, I think there's potential to get cattle out on it. But, but as far sure. as fall, it's going to be pretty tough. Um, if you got the potential to be able to fly that stuff on, uh, I've got some guys just south of me that background quite a few cattle that I work with, and they uh, they row crop uh, two or 3,000 acres probably. And they fly cover crops on, uh, even on their beans. About the time the, those beans start dropping leaves, uh, they're flying rye and, and uh, mostly rye on. And uh, and they, they graze. They'll actually they've got cattle on, out on it right now. I just delivered some tubs to them last week, and and uh, they were already grazing some of that stuff. So yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, and you're exactly right. So I think if if you really want that fall hit. Um, you know, you, you talked about it, but that the planning date is really what you're, um, what you're looking at there. And, um, so, I mean, if you're taking silage or something like that, something that opens your window where you can get that seed in the ground, uh, earlier in the even late summer, that that's, what's going to give you some actual fall grazing. Um, right. I but, would say uh, even if you can get that stuff planted in September, you know, yeah, you've got a, you've got a really good opportunity to probably get some fall grazing off of it. For yeah. sure. For sure. And like I said, and that's not to discount the <clears throat> the benefit that you can get in that, you know, late February, March and April time frame the next spring. Um, sure. Because, I mean, my goodness, that's when most guys are running out of hay, running out of places to put cows anyway. You know, you've already burned through all your stockpile and, and you're searching. You're either hauling hay bales or you're searching at that point. Yep. So, you know, last winter or last last spring. Um, you know, we actually left our heifer calves on the cows till, you know, we start calving in September, or September 1. But we had so much rye, crimson, wheat, you know, it, we just had so much cover crop and, and it was so lush that uh, we just left our heifer calves on the cows because they were just, I mean, they were butterball fat. The cows were butterball fat. Um, you know, it was just, you know, we weaned some 750 pound calves straight off the cow that had no, no creep, nothing. Well, they had cover crop for creep all winter, but yeah. Um, and 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 again, they were fall calving cows. I've had guys say, "How do you calve in the fall and have cows look that good?" Well, the answer for me is cover crops and yeah. being able to graze that, you know, that rye triticale. Uh, I don't know what. And I the butterball fat thing is is what made me chuckle because I don't know what the rate of gain on some of that stuff is, but it has to be incredible. Two plus. Look, oh yeah. I mean, in in February and March, when most guys are in a muddy lot somewhere uh, eating hay that's been sitting out since last June, you know, um, it, it just it, I mean, they blow up when you put them out on that stuff. Yeah, 
And so sometimes the guys say, well, I don't want to turn my cows on there because it's too wet. Um, I understand, but if you're a, this has been my, my thinking is on, on that is plant your cover crops on the stuff you're going to graze a little thicker. Number one, you want more forage, but the other thing is you get more root structure. Yep. And if you got more root structure, um, those cow, it can, t- you can uh, graze it a little wetter and those cows still don't tear it up as badly just because the root structure, um, helps keep that soil. I'm probably not the right terminology. You guys are the agronomy guys, but, um, it keeps it together better. And those cows don't sink in the mud. They don't, they don't tend to sure. chop it up nearly bad. If right. you got that stuff really thick. Um, sure. The other thing we do is we raise the wires up and even if we're feeding the cows, Hey, and don't want the cows in there. We'll let them 250, 300 pound calves go under the wire and start picking that rye and, and crimson um, when it's really small yet. And uh, we'll creep graze as soon as those calves. Well, if they want to start crawling under the wire and getting into it, we let them. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting too because yeah, just, you're exactly right. I mean they they're not going to sink in when a you know when you send a 1400 pound cow out there. Yeah. Yep. I think a big thing too is is just yeah you're exactly right just overall total residue that's out there is going to spread out that that impact of that cow hoof you know so um, you know you could probably graze something that was wheat the previous year or something that was corn the previous year uh, under a little wetter conditions than what you could graze you know <clears throat> something that's just soybean stubble that that you've got you know something drilled into. Yep, I'd agree with that. So are you are you stripping that off too, or they have access to? And obviously that that's just a logistics thing. It depends on your paddock and your field and and whatnot. But what's your kind of thought process on on letting them have some of it, or or you know, is that stuff is a little more digestible as it gets even later into its life cycle than some of the perennial stuff. So, and what's your thought process there was? Uh, well, so I mean, um, you want to use the same grazing management techniques that you would use on any forage, sure. in my opinion. Uh, to maximize, you know, intakes and, and actually let that cover crop recover. Um, and we, we gr- rotational graze it, same as we would any, any of the other forages we use. We have strip grazed it. Um, sometimes we'll, we'll run a wire. If the, the field's uh, fairly big, we'll run a wire across there again fairly high and let the calves go ahead of the cows. And then, you know, kind of we'll rotate them through, but the calves are, are able to get out in there and graze the lush stuff first before we, we bring the cows in behind them. But um, anytime you can move those cattle – and uh, not grazing any shorter than four inches or so, uh, it's going to pop back a little faster, and uh, you're going to be happier. The cows are going to be happier. Everybody will be happier. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they're not looking for the holes in the fence either when they're That's uh, exactly right. <laughs> yeah. When they're in there and happy. So, you know, just really putting together kind of everything that we've talked about here is is probably the you know the, the best strategy through the winter is that is that kind of your um kind of how you walk through it or, or walk me through kind of how you're running basically from from now until next spring well so i mean i guess probably really the question is you know what should guys be thinking with with high feed cost um yeah you know corn any kind of supplement that you're going to purchase right now is going to be higher than it has been in the past it's just it's the Oh yeah. Economic situation we're in right now. And, and the biggest thing I tell people is to think and plan as far ahead as you can. Um, you know, we want to try to utilize our resources, whatever we have to the best of our ability. If we've got some low quality stuff, let's figure out whether we can mix it with some higher quality forages we have. Um, you know, a strategy that some people might, and it's too late this year probably, but 
maybe not. Uh, if they had some low quality hay and they had the ability to maybe put out some rye or some crimson or something like that in a in another pasture, um, maybe you can actually uh, turn those cows in for a few hours and let them get some some high protein, high soluble fiber, um, high TDN stuff, and then and force them to eat a little fescue, you know, poor quality fescue hay along with it, and we actually get our energy and protein from another forage source, you know, like maybe some cover crops or, or maybe a guy just drilled some, some rye into a fescue pasture that he peeled off. You know, we've got some guys that maybe graze some stuff really short in August. Well, to me, a strategy might be if it's maybe too late to get any stockpiled fescue on there, maybe we go in and drill some rye or weed or something like that in that pasture, and then yep. we, we can actually use that um, that pasture to help supplement some poor quality fescue hay later in the winter or maybe early spring, as you said, whenever guys are digging at the bottom of the hay pile, maybe running out of hay, whatever, uh, we've got something there that we can actually supplement a poor quality forage with a high quality forage. Um, the other option, obviously, is some kind of, you know, hand-fed supplement, whether it's a, some kind of a grain mix or whether it's, um, you know, 20% cubes, breeder cubes, something like that to help supplement that low quality hay. But try to put a plan together to maximize the amount of use, match whatever forages we have with the production stage of the cow. So maybe we've got some spring calvers and falls. Maybe we can get by, since those spring calvers are dry, don't have as high of energy requirements, we can get by utilizing some poor quality forages with those cows and uh, prioritize the high-quality stuff on the wet cows that are trying to raise babies through the winter. Um, just stuff like that. But but to me, thinking ahead, um, you know, if I was, in, and I am a beef guy, back in the summer it was looking like we were going to have high grain cost, high supplement cost. To me, back then, it would have been the time to have been looking at some of these other strategies, like maybe planting some cover to graze or doing something like that. Uh, because, again, a cow harvest and forage is the most efficient, most cost-effective way to supplement or a way to feed a cow. Anytime we start adding harvesting costs, whether it's baling hay, chopping silage, or feeding them grain, that cost goes up a bunch. Yes, yes. No, that's exactly right. And and I think I think if we didn't if we didn't jump on that bus and, and managing that way this year. Uh, I don't think it's stepping out on a limb to say that our high grain prices are going to be here at least for next year uh, as well. Um, just just a simple math game of looking at what input prices are for row crops. So, um, you know, I think exactly. trying to put a plan to put a plan together to, to maximize those grazing days for next year as well. And using crop rotation or, you know, I think wheat's almost eight bucks right now. And so um, something like that, that gives you just a big window uh, to put something out there after harvest to graze or, or whatever. So. Yep. Yep. I mean, I think you're right. I think, you know, the way things are looking economically right now, it looks like we're certainly looking at high supplement costs, you know, high grain prices for at least another year. I mean, um, so the so beef guys need to be looking at other options to maximize the amount of uh, production they can get off of forage. And, uh, you know, even fertility, I know a lot of guys are probably looking at, at high fertilizer costs and, and thinking, how am I going to, you know, afford, how can I afford to put this on pasture to run cows? Well, you know, the alternative to that is cutting cow numbers because if you have less to graze, um, you just can't have as many cows running on it. And that's what's going to happen if you don't fertilize. Sure. And, but again, you know, grazing is the most effective way the most cost efficient way to, to put gain on a cow so 
if putting yep. if putting fertilizer out there allows you to keep grazing versus feeding hay, that's probably a smart move. That's Even right. if yep. fertilizer is eight hundred bucks or eight fifty a ton, whatever it's going to be next spring, none of us knows. But um, I guess something else we didn't talk about was remensen. Um, but I had I had a note down here. Um, sure. You know, remensen is an ion of four. It improves feed efficiency and rate of gain five to eight percent. Um, in times whenever feed costs are high, supplementation costs are high, whatever, a remensen becomes even more important. Um, right now, I tell tell guys there's two things that are really no-brainers in the cow business that everybody should be doing. If you know your your marketing system allows you to do it, and one is feeding remensen, and the other one is putting implants in your calves. Both of those two things will make you money every time you do it. Uh, the research data all says that, and you know, in time whenever t- things are tight. You definitely want to be doing the things that help improve your efficiencies, and those are a couple of things that you know guys need to be looking at doing when they can. Yep. Yeah, that that's uh yeah, it's funny that it's those are something yeah you hear just you hear over and over again. It's uh it it's rare that you get everybody to agree on something, um, but it seems like it, at least pull at least cherry picking one or two things like that you mentioned there for sure is that something that I just I consistently hear from almost everybody that it's like yep this definitely works. All that other stuff you know you can try this or make sure it works with your management system or whatever, but you know this definitely works. Cool. Well, do you guys have anything else to add? I think we covered it. I think we covered what I wanted to today extremely well, and it's is a really good conversation. I think a really timely conversation. Um, whenever I talk about this, I always want to um, I always get motivated to go start building some fence again um, around some stuff that that got taken out years ago. <laughs> one of these days, one of these days for sure. Um, but uh, either one of you guys want to add anything before we shut it down? I had a couple notes here on on cover crops. I had some some analysis on here, some book values, just in case anybody's interested. Yeah, uh, oh yeah, I'm definitely interested. Tur- turnips, uh, going to be 20% protein and probably close to 70% TDN. That's Jeez. that's crazy high. Um, crimson clover, 18%, mid 60s on TDN. Rye, um, depending on what stage of growth it's at, but 15 to 25% crude protein, mid 60s on TDN. Vetch. Uh, I use a little bit of vetch, 20% protein. Again, mid 60s or better on TDN. Um, those are some numbers you can't even. It, it's very hard to actually even bale high quality alfalfa hay that will top that. Yeah, I was just gonna say you're in alfalfa hay country there, and that is alfalfa hay that they didn't knock the leaves off of, and and that kind exactly. of stuff. So, yep. so in case anybody was wondering what some of those those cover crops, what kind of nutrition nutrition values they had, those were those are some book values on what some of that stuff actually has. Yeah. Well, there's a reason they turn butterball fat when they go out there, I guess. Um, but <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. I, 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 yeah, it, it certainly is. I, I think you talk to anybody that has seen, has just seen the grazing impacts of, of putting cows out there. will will tell you that they're just like, Oh man, those things just like, you could almost watch them gain weight. Yeah. yeah. I had, I had a guy tell me one time his cattle were gaining so fast. He was, he was a little bit worried about if they had a cold snap, and I looked at him a little funny, and he said, well, what do you mean? Or I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, he said, I'm afraid these calves are growing so fast, their hide's going to get thin, going to get tight, and they might not be able to handle the cold stress. <laughs> he was kidding, but, but that, you know, to, your, to your point about how fast they were growing, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he was yeah. afraid the hide 
wouldn't keep up with them. Hyde not going to keep up with the cow. Yeah, that's a that that a good problem to have if we actually ever ran into that. <laughs> I, I I was just going to say, you know, kind of wrap up. I mean, we talked about testing and the importance of making sure you're supplementing, make sure we have the right TDN and protein to get us through the winter and stuff. But we also covered, you know, a lot of different ways that we can help mitigate risk. And so there's just, you know, whether it's planting cover crops or utilizing stockpiling fescue, it's really going to be kind of what fits fits you the best. It's just like when we talk about row crops, you know, whether or not no-till fits, you know, there's so many different aspects of the way you can farm and still be able to do it. It's same thing on the um, cattle side is it's just all depending on how you want to go about it and how you want to set up for your area. But it's there's a lot of options and we're more than happy to always talk about it and try to help out but you know it's all about what's going to fit you know the producer the most um instead of trying to force them into something and i think as things are, are tighter and more economically challenged and the ability to be able to think outside the box to maybe be able to contact somebody with some experience regarding any of those things you, you know practices you might want to put in place is going to be you know really really important and as you said at mfa we've got specialists in every field that can can help somebody out if they want to try to implement some kind of strategy they've never used in the past yeah and um specialists who don't just do this from you know nine to three because they get paid for it or whatever but um you know we eat this kind of stuff up i love talking about this kind of stuff or reintegrating livestock on on uh you know on on row crop ground or, or just trying to make the all the pieces come together you know we uh we chose this career path or a lot of us did because, because we do eat this stuff up and we've seen it work and, and we want to make it work for, for folks. And, and so, yeah, I'd, I'd encourage you to, to, to reach out to somebody because um, just sitting down and like, I just, I really, I really geek out on the planning process of some of this. All of us that are probably involved in this business, God gave us a passion for ag. It's just that simple. Yep. Yep. I agree. Well, that's a good statement to end on, I think. So, uh, Stephen, Thank you very much uh, yeah, for taking you, the time to jump on here today. Um, there's a reason we asked you to, because I knew you were going to give us all kinds of good information. So I appreciate you fulfilling that for us and taking some time out and passing on some knowledge today. No problem. It was a pleasure. <laughs> thanks, Stephen. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. And we'll see everybody next time. Thanks for listening to Made for Agriculture. Email comments and questions to podcast at mfa-inc.com.